Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by a new conversationalist, Justin Lee, for a conversation of Dark City, the science fiction neo-noir hit of 1998, or rather I should say cult hit. Dark City is the movie that The Matrix should have been. It is about our conflicts about justice and our conflicts with science, trying to save our humanity in a modern situation that we experience increasingly as technological deracination. We don't know what world we're living in anymore, except the world we make. But every world we make, we remake constantly, and we end up not knowing who we even are. The ones running the experiments, or are we being experimented upon instead? Is there any unity left to being human? Do we understand ourselves and our relations to other people? These and a lot of other weighty questions of movies and the philosophy are what we will be dealing with today. But first of all, Justin, this is the first time you're on the podcast, so please introduce yourself for our audience. Yeah, so I'm an editor at Arc Digital, um, commentary magazine online. We're a pretty weird magazine. I like to describe our project as omnipartisan. We try to get as many different perspectives on the issues of the day as possible and try to generate a, you know, a serious space of intellectual pluralism. So that's some of my jam. I also teach writing at the University of California, Irvine, uh, where I did my MFA in fiction writing. I'm, I do a lot of political commentary and some theology and philosophy, but at heart, I am a fiction writer currently working on what is my second novel, but what I expect will probably be the first one that gets published. That's a story for another time, but it's been a blast lately. And I'm very glad to hear that. It's great to meet writers, and especially fiction writers, since political opinions and what people call takes, the world is already full of. So yeah. it's great to hear about this, and perhaps we'll talk about fiction another time and your writing. Sure. Um, now, to begin with, I should introduce our audience to the plot of Dark City, which is indeed a very strange movie. We start as our protagonist, John Murdoch, starts in a hotel bathroom, waking up in the bath. A lot of people have had that experience, but not that many people, and it's a very weird experience to have. If you wake up in the bath and you don't know what's happening, it's probably not good. It's like you don't know whether it's, you know, scarier to find that your organs have been taken or that they haven't been taken. <laughs> and you're there for a different reason. Exactly. So this is a disturbing beginning to a movie that only gets more disturbing from there because our protagonist very quickly gets a call from a man he doesn't know who recommends himself as Dr. Schreber. He tells him to get the hell out. They're coming for you. So this man realizes not just that he is under threat, but that he is in a worse kind of danger because he has no idea who he is. He has lost his memory. Mm -hmm. It's not just that he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know who he is. And I feel this is why the audience will find it very easy to identify with him. It's a very honest description of what life is like these days. This very quickly leads him to try to chase down his past through the material memories that he has. The address of a hotel, the room he's supposed to be in, the suitcase with his supposed possessions. All of these things are suddenly alien to him. He should be taking them for granted, but he can't take them for granted anymore because he has no idea where they come from or where they go. As this bewilderment increases, he notices at midnight that the whole damn city is stopping and his own personal crisis turns into a vaster crisis because the whole city is coming unstuck and is being reconstructed before our eyes. We should eyes. back up just a little bit. 
so it, you know he flees the hotel room and what he doesn't see but what we do see is that he wasn't alone there's the corpse of a woman on the other side of the bed that he couldn't see she is undressed and has had spirals cut into her body and so obviously murdered after he flees the hotel these mysterious men in black trench coats uh, with very pale sallow white faces no hair wearing fedoras appear at the hotel clearly looking for him and are thwarted in their attempts to find him yeah there are these two terrible things happening there is evil who murdered this woman and as we learn gradually who is murdering these women there seems to be a serial killer case and on the other hand these strangers mysterious men as you describe them who are after him when once he sees that the city is being shuffled, reconstructed, and we get a much better view of everything involved, all of a sudden the noir turns into science fiction, and we see that this is a mechanical city, essentially fictional, made and unmade at the whim of these strangers. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden he seems to be trapped in this world, not of his own making, that is essentially hostile to him. The plot unfolds from there in these two parallel directions. On the one hand, there's the case of the murdered woman, investigated by Bumstead, who is played by the wonderful William Hurt, a jaded detective who wants to get the bottom of this. On the sci-fi side, there is this Dr. Schreber that called him to set the plot in action, played by the even more wonderful Kiefer Sutherland, who just goes crazy in a very comic portrayal of Dr. Strangelove, you called him, I guess, in our prep. <laughs> Sutherland. Yeah. Exactly. And he's the guy who has all the answers. The detective has all the questions about where has our protagonist been, this John Murdoch. Is he guilty? But the doctor has all the answers. He knows what's been happening to people. He knows who these strangers are who have taken control of the city. And yet the questions and the answers don't add up. These are two very different worlds, the world of the heart and the world of the mind. The world we recognize and have affection for. We understand what these kinds of cars are like. It's a kind of 50s America, but sort of anachronistic. There are elements from past and future thrown together as from our memories, and we cannot but have a certain affection for them. We feel a certain way about all these things, just like we feel the fear and the confusion. We're scared of the dead woman. We are scared of the thought of a serial killer. And on the other hand, there is this other cold world where the city is just a mechanism. It is just stuff you build and rebuild. You transform, you shape and you misshape and you reshape at will. The plot plays out in between these two men, the detective he's running away from, and on the other hand, the doctor that he is occasionally drawn to to find out who the hell he is and what the hell is going on. And the plot turns when, in his quests, Murdoch realizes that his past, his memories, are made up. What he feels is most intimately his, that which he remembers, and is a secret, nobody else can know it unless he tells it, is in fact made up just as easily as the city. Who he is as a human being just as much as the city is just an artifact. At this point, of course, everything threatens to come unraveled. This is a point where a man might lose his mind. Indeed, we see Detective Bumstead, William Hurt's old partner, does lose his mind when he realizes it's all made up, it's all an artifact, it's a joke, and he kills himself. 
but our protagonist has certain things to live for. For one, he is afraid of these people who are chasing after him, and for another, he is in love with a woman. He does not know who this woman, played by beautiful Jennifer Connelly, who really is she? The wife that cheated on him, or is that memory just a story told by people who have absolutely no interest in whether it's true or not, or what it does to his life? Is she a complete stranger to him? This leads then to the final confrontation when the protagonist, John Murdoch, has to sacrifice himself to save this woman. And you know, you see there the importance of the noir story that we've gone through. The dark city, the misery, the moral compromises, everybody's damaged goods here, and some of them are mad and some of them are self-destructive. Because this guy decides to be a hero after all. It turns out that our attachment to our memories and the world we recognize, to the people and the kinds of places we recognize, is of such importance to him that he's not willing to give it up. He would rather face death, sacrifice for this woman about whom he is very ambiguous otherwise. So he ends up in this confrontation with the strangers who are revealed gradually to be aliens, inhabiting corpses who have created an artificial city where they are experimenting on human beings. Yeah, we're in deep space, find out eventually. And this is hinted at the opening title sequence uh, where a camera pans down from the starry sky. Then uh, near the end, our hero, John Murdoch, Rufus Sewell's character, uh, has to make a choice and surrender himself to the strangers or lose his supposed wife, Emma. In this moment, he has been tearing a hole in the outer wall of the city. And once he has completed this hole, we, we look out into the abyss of space and discover you know, that there is no ground, there is no world. Um, it's just the city suspended in nothing. Something we forgot to mention earlier was John Murdoch has something very special about him. He is able to change the world with his will. Uh, he's telekinetic in a really profound way. And some form of telekinesis is what the entire city and this alien race, the strangers, depends on for its existence. So all the changes that they make to the city is done by a kind of collective telekinetic power um, amplified by a machine that sits underneath the city. Before the strangers finally get a hold of John, who they've been pursuing because they discovered that he is able to tune, he's able to move things with his will and create things with his will. Before, before they finally catch him and take him down to the, the underworld, which is the truth of the world, Kiefer Sutherland's character, the doctor, Schreiber, explains to him you know, that he is powerful enough to control the machine himself and to shape the world to give it back to the people that have been kidnapped from Earth and placed in this kind of galactic zoo. And he has made a syringe full of memories for John that injected into John's forehead will teach him how to use the power in order to reshape the city. Yeah, so then jump back to the end. John is finally captured by the strangers and he's taken down beneath the city into the world of the strangers inside the gears of this great machine and he is placed on a dial and his arms are spread out in a kind of cruciform you know and the symbolism is fairly apparent and the plan of these aliens is to inject him with the memories of their collective consciousness and merge with him because john possesses a soul humans possess a soul this node of individuality and they don't 
And because of that, for some reason that's not clear to us, their collective species being is passing out of existence. And they need to find a way to individuate themselves in order to persist. So Sutherland's character, Schreiber, is given the syringe of alien memories to inject into John. But he swaps out the syringe for the syringe of memories that he has created for John to train him how to tune powerfully and to give him a vision for freeing the other humans who are trapped in the city. And then all hell breaks loose after he injects him. And he's all of a sudden as powerful as this whole collective species of telekinetic creatures. And there's an epic confrontation uh, between him and the leader of this collective consciousness species, who's uh, named Mr. Book. <laughs> all of the, uh, the individual strangers have these creepy names. You know, the other antagonist is Mr. Hand, and there's a Mr. Wall. It's always Mr. Discrete Object in the world that all of them feel like they're not because they're a collective. They're also anonymous. So a confrontation happens. John defeats Mr. Book and in the process destroys a huge water tower that floods down into the city. And because the strangers are hydrophobic, they can't tolerate water. This basically wipes out the alien race. All of a sudden, this small, isolated world is now John's to remake as he chooses. So uh, when he does remake it, he takes the one beautiful thing that exists in his memory, this place called Shell Beach, and makes it a reality. And then literally calls the sun into being. For the first time, something like true beauty begins to penetrate the dark city. And our closing scene is John walking on a, a pier and meeting his wife, who's had her memories wiped and exchanged again. She's been given a new identity. And so she's meeting him for the first time. And yet they still have that profound connection. And the film closes with the implication that they're going to be OK together and that John will be the god of this world to a certain extent. And there you have it, this final moment of the movie puts together our nostalgia for an older America that was happier and our ambitions, which are progressive, at least in regards to science. And we want powers every year, more power, indeed to be like gods, and puts them together through love. At least for John and Emma, personal love is the guarantee that they are really and truly human. It's what defines them, but it's also something that they do not quite have control over. Even with his newfound powers, John is not in control of whom he is in love with. Indeed, he could free himself of all these fake memories and not give a damn about this woman, but it turns out that he can't do that. Mm -hmm. He feels morally and psychologically bound to her, and just to the point of risking his life, but he loves her. It doesn't hurt that it's Jennifer Connelly and she is smoking hot. Uh, yeah, one assumes that very many people have loved her. Even with the faint unibrow, she's still pretty delightful in this film. Of course, because this is a noir, they even have her doing some smoky jazz singing in a speakeasy, and it's lovely. Yeah, torch songs. There's something very attractive about damaged goods. And so love turns out to be the solution, and we'll have to think through this as we talk through the movie. Now, Justin, first of all, how did you run into this movie? It's become a cult hit, but this was not a success on release in 1998. didn't make a truckload of money. Yeah, well, so I'm old enough that I remember network television back in the day, back before streaming. I saw this on, you know, it was shown on some network uh, with commercial interludes. 
I saw it. I was like, oh my God, this, I, I was probably 15 or actually, gosh, how old would I have been? Yeah, I would be 15 or 16. And it was like, oh, this is incredible. This is obviously incredible. And then I sought it out and found the DVD and watched it and found out, oh, there are, there are boobs in this movie. Uh, the network elided those. Uh, and so as someone who was in the thick of puberty, it was an even more cherished film for that reason. Mind you, this is before internet pornography explodes. So it was back when such a thing could actually have an allure for a young man. Yeah, me too. And I think most people who know the movie know it not from its theatrical run, but because like us, at some point they discovered it and it struck them. It has an unusual power for it. It has a good cast, as you said, Rufus Sewell, Jennifer Connelly, William Hurt, Kiefer Sutherland. But the director, Alex Press, was then unknown and is unknown now. He never went on to have a career, actually. He wasn't entirely unknown then. He was kind of a rising star because he had done The Crow. And The Crow was very successful and also has this kind of mythic status because Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's only son, died during filming in a really tragic accident. So there's this mystique to that film and that kind of attached itself to Proya's, at least for a time. Yeah, and this was his only real success. And it's really the triumph of a writer-director who gets to work out his vision with the necessary cast. And, you know, he's got a good budget for what he wants. This was not an expensive movie and it was not technologically ambitious, which I think is why it was upstaged by Matrix, which is otherwise a shallow and mediocre production. But so many of us have discovered it since, and given that we have moved on into the digital world, we have streaming and all that, it's very easily available now, and the injustice of its initial release can be made right. Now, the interest of the movie is this sense that this is who we are as modern people. We are stuck in some way in moral questions and in another way in scientific questions, and we are forever divided between them. Just like you said at the beginning, a shot of the starry skies pans down to this dark city. Putting Earth and sky together, it doesn't seem possible anymore. In our world, we live by our artifacts. We can make through technology whatever it is that we want. And on the other hand, whatever might be to the cosmos is very remote and in a certain way frightful. Indeed, we have entire classes of scientists who amuse themselves by telling us that we're not real, that we are just accidents of the cosmos, that we don't even matter, that our individuality is a delusion, our self-importance is of the same order as our thinking that the sun is moving in the sky. Our very experience is a stupid deception. Instead, we should take a cosmic view of our own irrelevance. And that is a great temptation. We are constantly being tempted in various ways to say, you are not a real human being. You are merely the product of certain social forces. Social construction has constructed your identity. And the movie shows us that every time the city is tuned, new buildings come up, others fall down. People's identities are changed, their memories, their material culture. In that first tuning scene, we have, you know, a really downtrodden working class couple having dinner, just eating a very meager looking soup. And the tuning happens, and everyone in the city is rendered unconscious, and they both pass out face down in their soups. And then the strangers come in and transform, you know, their tiny little apartment into a strange, you know, Gotham high-rise mansion, and then rewrite their memories so that, you know, they're waspy upper crusters, 
and the man has become the owner of the company that he used to work for in his prior incarnation. And all of it is just rewritten by fiat, by the will of these unseen creatures that live underground. Exactly. That's such an interesting scene because like all of these elements of social construction, it can be read in several ways. One of them is that your identity is just given to you by social class. You're bitchy and about to beat your wife because you're a poor, put-upon guy. But if you're rich and diffident, you know, you just don't care about anything that much. You're no longer even across the table from your wife because the table has turned out to be 30 feet long at this point. She's at the other end of the room. And that's who you are now. Another way to look at it is a Rex to riches story condensed in a few seconds. And these things do happen. There were people in America who came from nothing like Henry Ford or Andrew Carnegie who did end up in these strange modern mansions with these incredible fortunes and a new identity as rich, influential people with foundations and what have you. Or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg these days or whoever, I guess these were people who were middle class or upper middle class to begin with, but they were not stratospheric billionaires. So that is a fact of modern and especially of American life that we feel is both very plausible and very strange when once it's condensed into this one minute of puppeteering. Who are you if your life can change you that way, if your social circumstances can change you in this way? And that's not the only temptation of modern life, of course, although it's very important. You know, there's a nice scene where we see the underground world of industrial production of goods where the strangers, the aliens, make up all the things that we consume or use in our everyday lives to give us an identity. I am the kind of person who has a, whatever is fashionable these days, Apple gadgets. Yeah, and they're even writing the personal artifacts like diaries, you know, uh, fabricating these histories and fabricating your child's drawings that they never made. Yeah, and it's the Henry Ford assembly line of fabrication happening by all these corpses. So we have this world built by these reanimated corpses. And yeah, it's spooky. <laughs> exactly. The interesting thing is like it's and this is one of my critiques of the film craft. This film is relentlessly fast paced. It does not let you catch a breather to figure out what the hell is going on. And it needs to. If it were 10 minutes longer and we just had spaces of silence to absorb the world, the horror of it would sit in more deeply. And yeah, I think that would be, this would be a miniseries streamed on Netflix in multiple 50-minute episodes, right? It would be a very different watching experience. You know, yeah, I mean, you could see a story like this being drawn out. It doesn't need to be drawn out. The Matrix was drawn out, preposterously so. As a side note, it's interesting to see how, you know, this film came out a year before The Matrix, so it can't have had a ton of influence on The Matrix story, but it certainly had an impact on the, the visual aesthetic. And even set pieces from Dark City were used in the filming of The Matrix. They sold props. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. You see the second and the third Matrix film, uh, especially the third, when you have the fight between Neo and Agent Smith, you know, in this world, you know, where Smith is everyone, you know, within the Matrix. They had this massive uh, live action Dragon Ball Z fight, you know, crazy soundtrack happening. That whole sequence is ripped from Dark City. 
That's the fight between John Murdoch and Mr. Book. And even the collective consciousness is alluded to this John Murdoch or lone emerging individual, you know, versus, you know, all of these corpses that are interchangeable, just like Smith is interchangeable. You know, it's a straight, you know, you can call it a ripoff. I don't know that I would do that, but the influence is pretty stark. And something that you'll find is, you know, writers and artists know about Dark City and have been touched by it in some weird way. It's kind of put out tentacles uh, of influence into the world. And the Matrix is one of those vehicles uh, of influence. Yeah, that's right. And for good reason. As you said, it's an incredibly hurried film. In a way, it needs to be to maintain this frenetic confusion and danger that describes what our protagonist is undergoing. We have to feel what John Murdoch is feeling, since we do not have much in common with him otherwise, obviously. Still, it is rushed. It's a hundred minutes. It's a thrill ride, and you have to watch it a couple of times, even just to enjoy how wonderful and elaborate so many of the sets are, how good so many of the scenes are, that you then have to forget, because there's this new thing happening. To attend to each character... It takes quite some time. It's a movie lovingly crafted, but not easily comprehended. Yeah. It takes familiarity, it takes rewatching, and so it's much easier to do now when you can stream it, when you can show it to your friends, you can introduce somebody to it, than it was, of course, when it came out in 98. Yeah. We should talk about that visual style and the choices that are made, because it is very thoughtful all the way through. You know, all the different strange anachronistic set pieces, uh, where you have, you know, the automat. And then later you have on the subway, a black guy in a hoodie. And I think he's got like Walkman and headphones on. You know, these weird anachronisms are present throughout that give this unsettling experience. And one of the things that had come to mind when I rewatched it today is that it's like a living graphic novel. You know, they got very creative on a non-ideal budget, it would seem. I mean, they had to have had a legit budget for even some of the stuff that they pulled off. But they didn't have a Matrix budget. And yet they're doing visual stuff that is significantly more creative than what we get in the Matrix. But it is like a graphic novel coming to life. And even the effects of the contortions of the buildings, there's this aesthetic, like a child's pop-out book that is utterly disturbing. <laughs> Yeah, it's remarkably well done, precisely because I think you're right, this is the best description I've ever heard of the aesthetic, this graphic novel character to it, and this pop-out quality. It focuses on something that we do all see. You know, if you do go to a big American city, you will see in Boston or New York, 17th century cemeteries next to skyscrapers. Yeah you will see this strange juxtaposition that shouldn't really be there. We do live, you know, like Peter Thiel says, we have all these gadgets like iPhones and indeed the AirPods to distract us from the fact that we go around in infrastructure built 100 years ago, if it's the subway, mm -hmm. and never really fixed or improved. We don't have anywhere near as much progress as we think we do. We just take a lot for granted. Mm -hmm. But when it's put in your face in this way and you realize, hey, wait a minute, those automats are from the 30s or, you know, the 60s. But all these yeah. other things are way more modern or the cars are post-war or all mm -hmm. of these other things that make you wonder what world are we living in?
because as audiences, we're very savvy, so we know to pick up elements. Okay, I see what the cars look like. Okay, I see what the buildings look like. I know sort of the place. I know the milieu. I kind of get it. Yeah. But then they're mixed up in a way that makes you think, no, I, I don't get it. This yeah. does not have the coherence of a constructed world. It is a mockery of the real world. Mm-hmm. This is what you would really be seeing if you went into any metropolis of any size. This is what you would be seeing if you move around a little and paid attention to the shock of generations of things yeah. intermingled well, in strange ways, or indeed centuries apart. It's the world you would get if all that the aliens building the world knew about Earth was Frank Miller's, you know, Batman graphic novel. <laughs> You know, that's, I mean, this place is more Gotham than Tim Burton having sleep paralysis and having waking nightmares. It is the most Gotham thing imaginable. And that's wonderful. Also, you know, it's always night. You know, there should never be daylight in Gotham. One of the other things worth mentioning about the aesthetic, you know, when it comes to the villain design, the strangers, you know, being very pale, almost powdery white skin, bald, uh, no hair, uh, wearing all black. And then especially when they are down below in their own territory, because they're corpses, they have interesting dark clothing that is clearly meant to imply that they're being held together. And what this put me in mind of are the Cenobites from Clive Barker's Hellraiser. There is no chance that in these creature designs that wasn't in Proyas's mind. He's quoted on DVD commentary talking about the initial design coming from Rocky Horror Picture Show, the Riff Raff character, you know, their version of Igor, uh, just kind of elongated in Dark City. But also very clear that the Cenobites factor in, and even the spiritual implications of the Cenobites, because the strangers are torturers, even though they don't have the moral equipment to recognize that. That is what they are. They're just less interested in the torture of flesh than they are of the torture of mind and identity. Yeah, that's a very good point. There's a lot of this Frankenstein's monster quality to things, and especially, as you say, that this is torture by people who do not quite realize what they're doing. It would seem to be because, just like you have this temptation of reducing the world to social forces that construct identities, a kind of historical vision of man, You also have this alternative that man's psychology itself is just a matter of doing certain things to man, stimulating man in certain way, and he will respond in certain ways. There's this behavioral psychology temptation that we see when people's memories are put in and taken out, that your very identity is you being pushed around by events, and those events really are nervous stimuli that you will be responding to in a fairly predictable way. But what you might think of as an experiment, like Schreber does with rats in a maze, if you do that to people, that would be torture. Mm -hmm. Human beings know that they are being pushed around. They are aware of themselves and of their environment. But are they? That's one of the questions that this raises is, if you were not an autonomous individual, if you had been denied the very possibility of living an authentic life, you know, in the existentialist sense, could you know it? We take for granted that we do at some level, we do know something's wrong. But sometimes I don't think that we do. 
Yeah, I, I know what you mean, and this indeed is what makes the movie so plausible. We experience our modern life as two different things that wouldn't seem to fit together. One is a kind of drive for novelty. We're constantly changing, improving, destroying things. We don't hold on to stuff. Nobody lives in the house he was born in. Nobody expects to die in the house he lives in. It's just all constantly changing, like we see in Dark City, but there is done every night. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we do have a certain insistence about ourselves, and that tends to make us conformists. Mm-hmm. We like what other people like, we do what other people do. We pretend that this newest gadget we live with is how the world was always. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's just stuff that was invented a couple of years ago, and it took the world by storm. We weren't born on Facebook. And yet we take it for granted as though we had been. So there is this shocking, the more we push for novelty, the more we become conformists. Mm-hmm. And that does seem to threaten us with loss of our own identity, our own individuality. Our differences are shattered in our newer environments because they are increasingly the same. They are increasingly manufactured. And you do wonder, who am I really? What does it mean to be an authentic human being, not merely a creature of these circumstances? But, you know, there's kind of evidence of individuality, boredom. Everybody gets bored, especially nowadays. That's your existential reminder, that you're mortal. Mm. It's your fear of death telling you that nothing in this world available to you, not all the gadgets, not all the distractions, can take away from you the fact that you're mortal. And therefore, they can't make it up to you. I could be doing a billion things, but sometimes I'm bored. Am I out of options? Not really, but I just don't think any of those options are worthwhile. Everybody gets bored these days, but we're not aware of what it means. But what do we do when we get bored? Take out the phone and text somebody. You know, I know we're not allowed to speak his name anymore, but Louis C.K. You know, had a great appearance on I think it was Conan O'Brien years back, where he's talking about not allowing his children to have phones because. He knows that they won't be able to develop an authentic self. And, you know, he talks about how, you know, one of the things it is to be human is to get bored or get sad and then have to sit with it and move through it. That has a real effect on us. And if we allow ourselves to be sad, our body will eventually provide the endorphins needed so that it's a cathartic experience and that there is another side to it. And when these little existential crises, enough of them happen, it conditions us to be able to confront the larger existential crisis that is just all of our life. That's right. Louis C.K., America's last great comedian, did have these amazing insights. It reminded me of another thing he said, again, on Talk Show America. He said, well, you know, my daughter asked me if one day if her grandma's going to die. And he says, I, I wanted to lie to her, to reassure her, because I love my child and I don't want him ever to suffer. But the girl said, is grandma going to die? And I thought I should tell her the truth. But after I said yes, she said, are you going to die? <laughs> yeah. and, and then I had to say yes, not for a long time, like decades, but yes. He says, and then my girl stopped for a second and she said, am I going to die? And he had to say what no American parent wants to say to his kid, which is the truth. Mm-hmm. And he says, my daughter said, this makes me sad. And he told her, yeah, well, life sometimes is sad this way, but I love you and you'll get through it. Mm-hmm.
Indeed, we do have these intimations of our mortality that we studiously avoid and in fact have built an economy to avoid them. You're perfectly right. It's not just that we don't get progress when we waste our time on the smartphone. It's that we also do not get personal progress, any awareness of who we really are and what our situation is since we are mortal. That seems to be the moral impetus behind the movie. Why is the psychology of this frenetic, restless, confused movie so compelling? It's because it is an equivalent of what we really are doing morally. We are hiding from our mortality and we know for damn sure everybody else is too. Yeah. If this is America. If somebody asks you what's wrong, they're really saying what's wrong with you. Mm. Why are you unhappy in paradise? You should yeah. be happier. You should be better. You should be more successful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess we all should be, but we're still mortal and we do get bored or depressed sometimes because we realize suddenly that it will eventually catch up with us. At yeah. some point, we do not know. Well, will, catastrophe will strike. It's catching up with everyone right now. Exactly. And as awful as this sounds, thank God for that. It caught up to us at 9-11, and we had an existential crisis as a country in a very short period of time where we were unified together because of the way that grief and sacrifice, and I mean that, you know, in the ritualistic religious sense, binds people together. It was short-lived. And something that everyone was commenting on maybe a month and a half ago, but not anymore at all, uh, was that, you know, the horror of COVID had bound us together in a solidarity that we had not experienced in recent memory. Because all of a sudden we had an enemy, we had a threat that made us recognize the face of the other and our neighbors and in ourselves. But it was radically short-lived. And if it weren't for our technological mode of being, it would have lasted longer. That's a very good point. There is always some kind of technology standing between us and experience. Yeah, I want to maybe dig a little deeper on that. This is attached to one of my you know, kind of ongoing uh, writing projects that will eventually be a book it's about how liberal individualism and modernity in general, particularly you know, the way it is expressed economically, disrupts our narratives. In a sense, it makes true human narrative impossible, or at least it fragments it so profoundly that it's as if we don't have real narratives. And for listeners who know anything about post-traumatic stress disorder, you'll know that one of the hallmarks of trauma is fragmented life narrative. Your experience of yourself as protagonist in your story is radically disrupted and has to be rebuilt. A friend of mine, uh, David Morris, uh, has written probably the definitive book on the cultural meaning of PTSD. It's called The Evil Hours. And something that he highlights in this is that past human epics had tools to take a traumatized person and thread them back into the narrative that they had been excised from. You know, in the Middle Ages, that was penance in the Catholic Church for a soldier coming back from the Crusades. In ancient Greece, it was literally a soldier acting out what they had done in the war before the community on the stage, you know, representing it and thereby giving it meaning within a given context. We don't have those resources. One of the most defining features of modernity is the absence of such resources. And this is brought out in the film in a lot of interesting ways because you know, no one's narrative belongs to themselves, and there's no possibility of having an authentic narrative. 
And this is the case for a very fundamental phenomenological reason. And that reason is that there is no relationship to the dead. The humans that populate Dark City, who have their memories wiped and reprogrammed every night, they don't visit cemeteries. They don't go to the gravestone of a loved one. There are no cemeteries. There are no gravestones. There is no awareness of you know, the lingering nature of the deceased. There's no deep sense of lineage, of family, of having a history that one emerged into when they came into being. We very rarely allow ourselves, uh, especially in America, to think about the way death, the way our ancestors have provided the very means for us to be selves. You know, we, our very language is a gift of the dead to the living, and our use of language is a way of honoring the dead. The deeper our awareness is of that, the more authentic we are. The more shallow our awareness is of that, the more we try to recreate language by you know, tearing up the roots and trying to start over. You see this all through the modern academy uh, in just about any department with steadies at the end of its name. This absolutely just bonkers jargon that has been invented effectively as a way to separate ourselves from our ancestors, from the gift of language. You know, the language of late critical theory can't be used to construct an identity, a real narrative. It simply cannot. It's not laden with that power. It's not enchanted by, you know, the black magic of our ancestors. That's a very good point, that what you get in the dark city where it's perpetually night and there are these underground puppeteers that are really nothing but reanimated corpses is somehow death has taken power over life because living people no longer actually know they're dead. <laughs> and indeed, this is true of so many American cities. Any new place, in any old American city, where are the cemeteries? Yeah. Where do people go to talk to other people who also have people buried there? We are tied up in these ways and we cannot forget our past. We cannot dissociate everything that we know and love from people who made it possible for us and therefore the people who made it possible for them. All of our memories tie us to people, not just to things. But the people have somehow become discardable or, as it were, merely a private possession. Everybody has his own grandparents that he might remember lovingly. Mm -hmm. But it's not just what happened to this one guy. It's not just somebody who lucked out and had grandparents. By definition, everybody had grandparents. Mm -hmm. We come from that past, but we are severed from it, and therefore we do all of a sudden live under the power of death in a way we did not before, since we had more awareness of life and death, what brings them together and what separates them. It was easier to know that when you knew that. This is what happens to people. You don't need to go through life in an anguished fear of death that you can't admit to yourself, but you're constantly trying desperately to be more safe or healthier or happier or more distracted at least, more entertained. Mm -hmm. Because it really will come at some point, you don't know when. It has come for your grandparents or parents. It will come for you. It will one day come for your children. Death is also natural. That is no longer possible in this dark city that's dominated by the fear of death of these strangers, these aliens who have taken control of everything through this combination of technology and magical will. And on the other hand, people who have abandoned their past, who don't ask themselves. This is a constant thing in the movie that brings the story to its crisis. 
because our protagonist, John Murdoch, starts asking people, do you know the way to Shell Beach? Mm-hmm. It's there on the posters. It's beautiful at Shell Beach. Everybody knows it. Everybody has uh, this good feeling. Oh, yeah, I know it. Yeah. Like you might talk about your favorite song. Oh, yeah, that was great. But do you know where it is? Is it a real place that you can get to? Your memories in this movie supposed to connect you to reality. It's not supposed to make you self-obsessed, self-involved. It's not even supposed to just give you that feeling of a thing you remember. Oh, remember how good that was? Do you know the way? If you think you know where this place is, can you get there? And so memory is supposed to lead people back to perception, to presence in the present. This real world that you're really inhabiting. Are you aware of it? But people are stuck because memory does not lead them back to their perception. They're not really living in a city. These are people who do not ask themselves, why is it always night? This question at some point comes up, just like, do you know the way to Shell Beach? Do you really remember this thing that you think you remember? Can you be specific? Does it correspond to a real being that you can have access to? Or are we forever lost? That is indeed a drama that people feel in their lives. It actuates people. It is the hidden reason behind the economy of distractions. It is the hidden reason behind our saying, you know, I will flee the real world into the virtual world. Because in the virtual world, I'm not so depressed or people don't make me sad. In the virtual world, I'm not so needy. Whereas in this movie, you see the full connection between love and neediness. How desperate our protagonist gets. Because he needs mm-hmm. to know for sure who he really is. He needs to know whether he's, a, he's accused of being a serial killer. Whether he is capable of love and of being loved. In the case of this woman who he thinks may have been his wife. It turns out that she's just a woman he loves. He just thinks of her as it were, as his wife. Lost memory is a metaphor for recollection in this other sense. This is a woman you love. Immediately you think of, we could be together forever. And there's a name for that, and it's marriage. Mm -hmm. This is a guy trying to become a human being who has realized in this painful way gradually that he is not really human. That There are certain parts of being human that have been taken away from him, but he feels the need for them. You know, in a movie that's a crime thriller, it's a new noir, it's science fiction, it's quite grim, and it's mm. as dark as the title says. It is the dark city. There's a lot of room for beauty in this movie and for longing. Mm-hmm. There's a strange, erotic tension in the movie that shows you that this protagonist longs, needs something mm. to tell him that he's human. That would seem to be what drives him. Why he is not just running away, why he's not just negatively determined. But he's trying to find out who he really is, and he can't understand who he is except by people who know him. The woman who he thinks is his wife, this guy who he thinks is his uncle, who can tell him about his past, about the parents he lost, about the world and the life he lost. He would like them back. He cannot be satisfied with replacements or delusions or artifacts. And this seems to be also what makes him willing to face the fact that he's lost all these things. Mm-hmm. They are really and truly gone. That a violence was done to him, equivalent to what we see, is just a city in the sky. It's just a city in the cosmos. Yeah, and of course, his uncle and the idea of family, you know, these are all implanted memories. None of it's real. You know, and he has a meltdown when he finds that even the things that seem like they might be real, that they could lead to a rediscovery of narrative, are also false. You know, he really does have nothing but shadows. Yeah, I I hadn't thought about anything in the film being, you know, genuinely erotic in terms of desire, you know, in kind of the profound phenomenological sense. And this is where we might differ a little bit in our interpretation of the film. It seems to me that, you know, in order to truly desire, you have to have a narrative. 
You know, if we think about desire and just the most fundamental sense as the self's directedness towards some end, then at some base level, we have to have a self capable of choosing its own ends or recognizing the proper ends that it should pursue, even if it's not a pure, spontaneous, arbitrary choice of the end. To the extent at which any of these characters are not selves, they're incapable of desire. You know, this actually comes through in the acting in the film, because the acting in a lot of ways is flat for a lot of characters. This can often be a feature of noir film, but the volumes turned up on this characteristic in this movie. You know, it's like the actors intuit from the story this reality about the characters that they're portraying that they're not fully desirous creatures because they're not fully selves capable of directing or being directed towards proper ends. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think this is indeed a very real problem that obviously the writer-director thought through as the actors because it's all well-staged. It can't have been a coincidence that it was done this way. And I think it connects very well to what you were talking about in terms of trauma before. The movie starts with this guy, John Murdoch. Who is he? He's John Murdoch. He just saw that somewhere. He tries hard to remember his name from initials. He hears it from others. He doesn't know who he is, but in a way he's just recovering a kind of natural condition. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess nowadays you would say, my name is Justin, but in previous ages you'd have said something like, I am called mm-hmm. Justin. This is how you say it in other language. Je m'appelle. Yeah. Because you don't choose your name. How do you know what your name is? Somebody else gave your name to you. Mm-hmm. It ties you to other people, and when you don't know your name, it's because you're not related to other people, or they don't know your name the other way around. So a lot of the movie recovers what is radical loneliness, what is a situation we're really confronted with that is especially tied to the noir because there you do see trauma, what it means for what you believed about society, morality, life, being human, being torn apart. Some catastrophe happens that tears your life apart. And indeed, in this guy's case, it took away his identity. It became amnesiac. And with other characters, you also see in what ways they're damaged goods what is missing in their lives, what they've lost. And I agree with you that it makes them flat. They don't seem to be fully human. Mm-hmm. Speaking, of course, in the way in which fiction represents being fully human as opposed to actual humanity. But you also see with them always a sense of law. Mm-hmm. These people are not happy with their situation. They have a certain capacity for dark passions, anger, guilt, shame, fear, that ties with the fact that they know what they have to lose and they sense what they have lost and they're not happy about it. And that is merely the negative version of what we're talking about here, desiring through humanity the happiness and the misery that flesh is heir to. You do see a sort of shame, not just melancholy, in the wife. You do see the anger of the men, a certain kind of desire for justice. You see in this miserable doctor, played like a Nazi by Kiefer Sutherland, you see not just fear of these aliens that have enslaved him, but he's so despicable because he loathes himself because he chose to serve them instead of dying. But at the same time, a kind of desire, sometimes gleeful, to screw them over. Mm -hmm. Not just to flip the bird, but to destroy these things. It's a rebellion against this impoverishing condition, which drives the characters at the core of the plot continuously, whatever the risks, and some of them die. But it drives them because there is something worse than death, Mm -hmm. which is loss of your identity. 
when once you have been mutilated, you realize that. They want something back, or at least they want justice for what they've lost. And Sutherland's character, I would argue, is the only character, at least maybe until the very end, who is actually capable of desire in the proper sense, who has memory of the gone away world, who has a genuine continuity of person through time, even if he has an impoverished narrative, even if he is a despicable toady biding his time to rebel. And it's a genuine rebellion. It's not an animal trapped in a corner, acting on pure brute instinct, lashing out, uh, which means that it's founded in desire. And of course, so, you know, his performance is the best in the film because his character is a character. Yeah, that's a very good point. He is in this strange situation in between the old world and the new artificial manufactured world, in between his alien corpse masters and the human beings he is supposed to be experimenting on, but to whom his real allegiance ties him and whom he would like to save. He has this drama you see in his misery that he tries to save his life, makes him slavish but at the same time he's trying to save all these people so he's concocting a complicated plan that he cannot be fully in control of because other people are required and other powers are required in his own which puts him in their hands he's the only one who really knows what has to be done but he cannot do it himself Mm -hmm. it's a wonderfully interesting position to be in and the characterization reveals this gradually when you see people rough him up, push him around, the detective does it, our hero does it, of course the villains do it, gradually you begin to become not just sympathetic to him, but to understand what position he is in when even the people he's trying to save think that he's the problem mm-hmm. rather than what he really is. He's the man who orchestrated the solution. Mm-hmm. But that somehow is tied up with human freedom. He cannot do it all himself. He needs these other people and they have to consent to do it in their own way, in their own individuality, not as his puppets. Mm-hmm. And it is only at the very end that he delivers this version of an education for rule in a concentrated way. What it means to really use your power as a human being for the sake of other human beings. Mm-hmm. For the first time it becomes possible to have a common good, a kind of natural community. And all of it is dependent on him. And of course, this doctor played by Kiefer Sutherland is the only character that's like the director as much as John Murdoch is like the audience. We like the protagonists are confused, angry, hurried, harassed by events, shocked by the changes that happen, wanting desperately to get to a happy end, wanting to figure it out or at least to get rid of the problem. But there is this doctor who is like the director who only shows up now and then, but is orchestrating things in as much as possible. But he's not in control of them. Mm -hmm. The audience has to play along. We have to figure it out for ourselves. Just like the protagonists have to figure out that they should be helping this doctor, not beating him up, not threatening him. Anyone who watches this, who knows the allegory of the cave, about 15 minutes into the movie, you know, oh, this is an allegory of the cave. And it's like, as soon as Neo wakes up in the Matrix, it's like, oh, right, this is Plato. And then it becomes this gross Gnostic thing in the Matrix anyway. So we have an allegory of the cave where this whole world is an illusion. And the Doctor is so interesting because he is Plato's man who has, to an extent, become free of his chains and discover the nature of his condition. But then the jailers are able to coerce him into creating the shadows on the wall for the other characters. And he has to find a way in that capacity as shadow master to lead others out of the cave. 
then he succeeds. But the really unsettling question at the end is whether there truly is an outside to the cave. Once the puppeteers are destroyed, John Murdoch has complete control of this world and the, you know, this world building machine, this reality engine. You know, the question remains, once we're outside the cave, is there a son of the good? He creates a son at the end. But, you know, the haunting question is, is this still just a more effective illusion, a more effective shadow? You know, the film does not provide an answer to that question. Yes, that's exactly right. We are stuck with this. Uh, you know, we really live in the dark city. We live in a world where we care about the laws, about justice, we read stories about crime, and we're scared like all of the stuff you see in the movie. But we also now and then realize that underneath the city, there are the engines that make it work. Hmm. These are not places that could just live on the earth. They live by technology. The engines have to keep running. If they stop for a day, people will die in vast numbers and panic would ensue. We are stuck with this situation where there's always between us and the world a strange technological contrivance. Mm -hmm. And that indeed involves this question, how far does human will go? How far do our powers go? Mm -hmm. And the way it shows at the end is, can this guy create a sun? Does he have cosmic powers or just an illusion of them? Mm -hmm. Is it just a sun for this city? Or does it really have qualities that the sun has? Is it really the good that we as human beings aspire to, which is not of our own making? Mm -hmm. Our own being, our natural pleasures, our desires, and our desire to know mm -hmm. the truth are not of our own making. They antedate any willfulness. Mm -hmm. And they must antedate indeed all societies. Yeah. There is something to us that is natural and that is not under control, which makes us constantly be displeased with the way things are. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of conformism in our world, but one suspects, and from private life, one knows that many people who are conformists bitch about it, grumble, mm -hmm. might hate their boss or disapprove of the politicians or whatever. Even when they feel they need to shut up and just deal with it, they still internally dissent. They know that this isn't right, this isn't good. That capacity for disagreement and dissatisfaction shows that we have at least some grasp of what would be a more natural human way of dealing with things. And at the end, indeed, once the slavery of the puppeteers has been thrown off, you, you wonder at this other matter. Is the sun really the sun? Is the good really the good? Do we have some kind of access to the cosmos? Or is it just illusion? Yeah. That is a deeply involved question, which I think is one of the things meant to not just give people a happy end, people yeah. want a happy end, but to make people watch the movie again and to think about it. Because indeed, as you say, in a certain way, it's obviously modeled on Plato's Republic this revelation of man's natural slavishness and the difficulty of getting to man's natural goodness, to understand the natural goodness of the world yeah. and in what way we participate in it. So really creepy thing. There might be a hint here, and this is probably me over-interpreting. The strangers, they all have names, but the names that are chosen are the kind of names that you choose when you don't know what a name is for. <laughs> and so... You know, the ostensible leader of this species that has a collective consciousness, Mr. Book, and then one of his henchmen, kind of the chief henchman, Mr. Hand. There's another one who's Mr. Wall, and all the names are for this discrete category of thing. So, of course, Plato's allegory of the cave is that outside the cave are the forms, the ideas, the things as they truly are in which the individual discrete beings that we encounter are by virtue of participation. 
And so there's this idea, you know, you could think of each of these strangers' titles as, you know, it's not a specific book. You know, it's book, hand, wall, you know, it's category of thing, it's form. And yet they are the puppeteers. So there's a really frightful aspect of this. You know, if we think about them as existing in the realm of forms, as the outside of the cave is really the subterrain of the city, then what we have is a pure nominalism. You leave the cave and discover there's no sun, which means that we have a pure nihilism and there is no hope for these characters. And they're just left with John Murdoch as the new demiurge. I see what you mean. I think you're right about interpreting the aliens. The obvious thing, right, their animated corpses, their death, is the truth about the matter. You can see their, the actions that follow from mm-hmm. that way of thinking, which is, you know, the social construction of society. Mm-hmm. That's the correlative of nominalism. But what Plato means about the distinction between the cave and what is natural is like saying that, you know, in some cities, they don't really think people are people. Mm-hmm. We are by nature human beings, but how politically humanity is recognized, arranged, where it thrives and where it is mutilated is a very different matter. And in different places, they do different things. So we have a capacity within our cave to realize that there's something wrong. That seems to be how people are able to rebel against these mm-hmm. strangers, these aliens, these underground puppeteers, because there is something funny, there's something wrong about what they're doing. There is, in a certain way, a mutilation of human nature. The movie plays out this question, is there really anything such as evil? Mm -hmm. Or is evil just what you've done to somebody? You give people certain stimuli and they would respond in such a way that they become serial killer. It's not a problem of good and evil, it's just, you know, Mm -hmm. science. It's just cause and effect. But that theory is rejected. John Murdoch does not become a serial killer as he is intended to become. Indeed, he shies away from death. And it's not just that, but he has a capacity for skepticism. He says that he went to see this prostitute because he didn't know whether he was the kind of being that could commit murder or not. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't. He never kills anybody because he's scared of it. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to get at is that there is one thing in the city that isn't simply constructed. I mean, something in our desire for justice is genuine. Mm-hmm. The question of good and evil cannot be reduced to causation in the way these kind of behavioralists experimenting on people would assume. If you give the right incentives, you will get the effect you want, which is a serial killer. Mm-hmm. What is scary to us, evil, is from the scientific point of view, merely cause and effect. But that's not how it plays out in the story. There is a limit to what these puppeteers can achieve because they don't take good and evil seriously. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of motion from rejecting evil to searching for good that, you know, articulates the plot that is seen in this protagonist who is scared of himself, but who doesn't become wicked. Mm -hmm. So there is a difference between human beings and other beings. You can think of a catastrophe as natural evil or shark attack, but there's no intention to destroy and harm people Mm -hmm. in the way that our fear might suggest. But with human beings, there is. There is something in these aliens that is wicked. And so even in the city, even in the cave, there is a certain concern with justice and the distinction between the good and evil that is a permanent possession, not merely a delusion of circumstance. People may lie to themselves about how they arrange it, but as Socrates says in the Republic, even a gang of thieves needs justice. They might rob other people, but how are they going to trust each other? Mm -hmm. Like you see with the characters in the movie, that they have a deep desire for trust. Mm -hmm. 
they are scared or wounded, but they look to find what evidence will convince the protagonist, his wife, the detective, the doctor, to trust somebody else and to take a chance to risk things on the belief that another human being really understands your humanity and the moral implications. So that this noir aspect of the movie, the justice question, mm-hmm. are you really guilty? It's not a mere uh, decoration. It's not just an aesthetic. It gets to this deep question that as human beings, we have far more experience of our own affairs than of cosmic affairs. Mm-hmm. There's something in the starry sky that seems majestic and dignified in a way human beings don't. But there is something in human beings that is unique, which is our concern with justice. Yeah, I like that. Um, I might add, you know, just to get super theological... You know, it's not so much that there is something wicked present, you know, within the strangers. Uh, It's that there's something good absent. Their whole mission is to deal with that, fill up that absence in their species, this absence of soul. And of course, they name that, you know, they want to have a soul. But of course, they can't conceive of what that would mean, because they're basically like programs that are running. You know, they have a base command to persist as a species. They discover that they can't do that as solely a collective, that the collective must be in tension with the individual in order to have a truly historical existence. But, you know, (laughs) they're missing the Imago Dei. They don't bear the image of God. And one way to conceive of the image of God, at least in the individual, is that no individual is purely individual. We are all composite in different ways, but also not reducible to that composite. So, you know, we are the sum of all these relations that we have with the world and with others. And we are something in excess of that. You know, it's a paradox that recapitulates the circumcision of the Trinity, uh, where we are both self and other simultaneously. And the presence of the other in the self is what defines the self as self. The strangers don't have that, and they can't have that. And yeah, so I'm wondering if, you know, in terms of trying to redeem my my super pessimistic take on things, you know, as John Murdoch and Emma, who becomes Anna, um, Jennifer Connelly's character, fade into the sunrise, not the sunset, you know, if they are able to recognize the other in themselves and the self in the other, then that would provide something like a way into the knowledge of being towards a kind of ontological ground and truth that they could found a human world on. Yeah, that's a very good point, right? That you are your father's son, but that doesn't mean that somebody knows your father, he can deduce exactly who you are. We identify ourselves in these ways, and it makes sense, but the very fact that we're trying to do it shows that there's something else happening at the same time. If I think of myself as my father's son, I'm also thinking of myself in this way. I'm not just my father's son. I have a need to think this way. Our relationships do not exhaust our individuality, but we couldn't articulate our individuality without them. We couldn't be who we are without all the other people, but with the other people, it's still pretty hard. There's something unpredictable to it that indeed points to how shifting and difficult even thinking about what it's like to be human is. You could say that's how we try and we fail at things. We understand that there are purposes set by our nature that we cannot quite achieve that leads us to think beyond our own powers to God. Mm-hmm. We already have the purposes in our own nature that point us beyond our own powers and beyond our own existence, beyond our own mortality. So we do have this natural grasp that leads beyond what we ourselves can achieve within our own limits. And part of that would seem to lead us to think that you shouldn't do violence to human nature, that you shouldn't mutilate people. Mm -hmm. 
So you see there a difference between John Murdoch and his antagonist, these aliens who aren't really alive. Mm-hmm. As Aristotle says, being alive is soul. It's the way of being of any living being as opposed to rocks. But for human beings, it's unusual because we insist on our individuality so much because of our own faculties, our own powers. John Murdoch doesn't want to manipulate even this woman he loves. You don't know how things are going to turn out. It might lead to heartbreak. Mm-hmm. But that involves the strange freedom of individuality that we are not simply reducible to our relationships, just like we are not simply reducible to the limits of our mortality. Mm-hmm. Suffering doesn't simply take the aspect of necessity for us. We can think of a freedom greater than that. We can think of overcoming suffering. We can think of its injustice, for example. Mm-hmm. We are not simply limited to events or to experience. Events and experience prompt stirrings in our own nature that lead us beyond our immediate circumstances and beyond all our limits, really. That would seem to be merely at the beginning here, that finally people are liberated in this sense that they are no longer under a mutilating kind of slavery that denies them their human nature. Now, the fulfillment of that nature requires a kind of freedom and therefore involves all the risks. The alternative to dark city, we don't know quite what that is. I mean, this is not going to become the city of God. It's going to become some kind of human city. And many human cities are quite miserable. It's not obvious that, you know, now they're going to have the solution to all the problems. By no means. All they have really is that they are not enslaved. Mm -hmm. But there is indeed a lot that is worrisome and even threatening in that kind of freedom, since many human cities turn into horrifying tyrannies again. Very realistic. At least now it will be a human tyranny. Yeah, there's an advantage to that. Not least of which is that, right, even the slaves of a tyrant can look forward to his mortality. You know, the strangest insight of the movie seems to be that the things we have to fear are not in the past, but in the future. What if there were some kind of disembodied mind that had absolutely no respect for your moral freedom? Mm -hmm. They didn't care about your capacity to tell lies or make mistakes, for your need to learn things you don't already know. Something that would Mm -hmm. simply make experiments on you and then fit you in some kind of way that's functional. That would seem to take away from you your humanity. Have you seen the new season of Westworld? Only the have you first watched? couple of episodes. Okay, gotcha. Well, that's the theme of the current third season. You'll, yep. you'll enjoy that. It seems to be so. Indeed, it does seem to be something that we will be confronting because there is this great temptation, as you say, to think of things as, you know, what if an algorithm can get it better? What if algorithmic intelligence should replace human intelligence with all our imperfections, flaws, mistakes, skepticism, doubts, uncertainties? <laughs> That is the temptation of the times, and it seems like this is what was on the mind of Alex Proyas. And I should add, he wrote this screenplay with David S. Goyer, who also wrote the Blade movies and co-wrote the Batman movies and the Superman movies with Chris Nolan and Zack Snyder. Yeah. And, uh, he went on to do great things in Hollywood, and he had you know, seen all these movies, a deep interest in justice, a deep interest in the problem of human identity whether you can ever found a city like Gotham. And of course, mm-hmm. in the case of Superman, what would it mean to have to have a, something like a divine power? So the sorts of things you already see in Dark City were then developed in many other more famous movies, but they are deeply connected thematically. So yeah. if anybody's a fan of the Nolan Batman movies and the Snyder Superman movies, you should watch Dark City. <laughs> they are deeply yeah. connected. And Dark City is able to fulfill that role because it knows its influences very well. So people familiar with the history of film are going to see Fritz Lang jumping out at them um, and screaming, look at me. You know, this is like a footnote within Metropolis in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's so interesting that Proyas hasn't become a Tarkovsky, 
because he has the vision and the skill. I just wonder, yeah, I don't know. Someone just needs to like make him poor, I think, so that he has to get creative again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, it's a strange thing to think that uh, this was his one big achievement when it is indeed so pregnant with other ideas, with possibilities. Mm. You think there's so much more but it hasn't turned out that way, or at least not yet. Yeah. Maybe circumstances will uh, give him new opportunities to find himself, what he's I, really capable of. iRobot was a decent movie. That was a very enjoyable movie. It was rote in some ways, but it definitely grappled with some of these questions in a different context. The context necessarily limited, I think, by the source material. Yeah, which is highly materialistic. Yeah. Isaac Asimov is not exactly where you would go to think very seriously about what it means to be human, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. But still, there was this one shining moment. Really, that's more than most directors get. It's more than most writers get. It's a remarkable achievement, and people should watch it or watch it again. Indeed, I screened this two years back for some friends, and I screened it for my wife recently, and I still enjoyed the movie and made me think about some things that I hadn't considered before. But of course, so also has this conversation. I hadn't really taken seriously the importance of the dead, both to the deracination of the society and to the way they reappear as the dead underneath the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, puppeteers. So thanks a lot. This was the sort of thing I expect but cannot predict and why I will enjoy this conversation so much. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. I, I, I always need a corrective to my reflexive pessimism. Yes, I have sensed that. I gotta say, I'm not used to optimism, but uh, you inspired it in me in this strange way because you're going on a downer. <laughs> And indeed, it is that kind of movie. I mean, there's a lot of thrill, there's a lot of action, there's a lot of victory, but there is so much darkness, as you rightly underlined, and people have to balance the two things out. But I would say that, you know, the most significant part is quite uh, disturbing and upsetting, and as it should be. It's, uh, I think you're pointing in the right direction comparing this to Tarkovsky, who also had, a, in a way, a hopeful, certainly a Christian vision. But at the same time, he was deeply distressed and wanted to distress his audience about the circumstances we find ourselves in. Tarkovsky was living in the cave in a pretty profound sense. Yeah. Well, Justin, thank you for the conversation. It was wonderful talking to you. I've long looked for something that we are both in love with that we should talk about, and hopefully our love will uh, inspire our audience to go and see this and fall in love with the movie themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks a lot, and let's do this again sometime. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. Thanks for having me.